Section 19 of Lay Down Your Arms. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Lay Down Your Arms by Bertha von Suttner. Translated by Timothy Holmes. Chapter 5, Part 4. Next morning I woke with a feeling like the one I always had as a child on Christmas Eve, and once on the morning of my marriage with Arno, the same inexpressible expectation, the same excited anxiousness, that to-day something joyful, something great, was at hand. The remembrance of the words which my father spoke the day before did, to be sure, cause a little trouble, but I quickly chased this thought away again. It had not struck nine when I left my carriage at the entry to the Prater promenade and mounted my horse which had been sent forward with a groom. The weather was spring-like and mild, sunless indeed, but only the milder for that, and besides I carried the sunshine in my heart. It had rained in the night, the leaves were adorned in their freshest green, and a smell of moist earth rose up out of the soil. I had hardly ridden a hundred paces down the promenade when I was aware of the tread behind me on a horse coming round at a round trot. "'Oh, how are you, Martha? I am pleased to meet you here.' It was Conrad, the inevitable. I was not at all pleased at this meeting. However, the Prater is certainly not my private park, and on such a beautiful spring morning the ride is always full.' How could I have been so foolish as to reckon on an undisturbed rendezvous here? Althaus had made his horse follow the pace of mine, and settled himself evidently to be my faithful attendant in my ride. At this time I perceived Frederick von Tilling at a distance, who was galloping down the ride in our direction. "'Cousin, you are my good ally, are you not?' "'You know that I take all possible trouble to dispose Lily in your favour. Yes, my noblest of cousins. Only yesterday evening I was again vaunting your good qualities, for you are really a grand young fellow, pleasant, discreet. Whatever do you want with me? Just to give your horse the spur and ride off. Tilling was by this time quite near. Conrad looked first at him, then at me, and without speaking a word, nodded at me with a smile, and went off, as if he was flying for his life. "'Tis Althaus again,' was Tilling's first words after he had turned round, so as to ride on by my side. In his tone and his manner jealousy was plainly expressed. I was pleased at it. "'Is he so out of patience at seeing me again, or has his horse run away?' "'I sent him away because—' "'Countess Martha, odd that I should meet you with this Althaus of all people!' Do you know that the world says he is in love with his cousin? It is true. And is he trying to win her favor? That is true also. And not without hope? Not quite without hope. Tilling was silent. I looked into his face with a happy smile. Your look contradicts your last words, he said, after a pause, for your look seems to me to say, Althaus loves me without hope. He is not in love with me at all. The object of his suit is my sister Lily. You take a weight off my heart. 
This man was one of the reasons for my wishing to leave Vienna. I could not have borne to be obliged to look on. And what other reasons had you besides? I interposed. The fear that my passion was increasing, that I should not be able to conceal it longer, that it would make me ridiculous and miserable at the same time. Are you miserable today? Oh, Martha, since yesterday I have been living in such a tumult of feeling that I am almost beside myself, but not without the fear as when one has too sweet a dream that I may suddenly awake to a painful reality. I have no right to expect any return for my love. What can I offer you? Today your favor smiles on me and lifts me into the seventh heaven. Tomorrow, or a little later, you will withdraw from me again this undeserved favor and plunge me into an abyss of despair. I know myself no longer. How hyperbolically I am speaking, I who was formerly such a calm, circumspect man, an enemy of all extravagance. But in your presence nothing seems to me extravagant. In your power it lies to make me happy or wretched. Let me speak of my doubts, too. The princess... Oh, has that chatter come to your ears, too? There is nothing in it, nothing at all. Of course you deny. That is your duty. The lady in question, whose heart is now imprisoned, as is well known, in the Burg Theatre, and how long will that last? For it is a heart which gives itself away pretty often. This lady is one about whom the most circumspect gentlemen need hardly observe the silence of death. So you are doubly bound to believe me. And besides, should I have wished to leave Vienna if that rumor had had any foundation? Jealousy does not draw reasonable inferences. Should I have ordered you to remain here if I had been near making up a match with my cousin Althaus? It is hard for me, Martha, to be riding so quietly by your side. I should like to fall at your feet, to kiss at least your beloved hand. Dear Frederick, said I tenderly, such outward acts are not needed. One can embrace with words, too, and caress all the same as if we kissed, he said, concluding the sentence. At this last word, which thrilled through us both like an electric shock, we looked for some time into each other's eyes, and found that one can kiss even with looks. He spoke first. Since when? I understood the unfinished question well enough. Since that dinner at my father's, I replied. And you? You? That you does not suit Martha. Footnote. See? You is used in German to strangers, du, thou, to intimates. But as no such habit prevails in England, du is translated into the ordinary you throughout the book. End of footnote. If I am to answer the question, it must be put in a different form. Well, and thou? I? Just since the same evening. But it was not so clear and decided to me, till at the deathbed of my poor mother. With what longing did my thoughts turn to you? Yes, that I understood. But you, on the contrary, did not understand what the red rose meant which was wound in among the white flowers of death, or else when you came here 
you would not have so avoided me. I do not yet comprehend the reason of this holding off, and why you wanted to go away. Because my thoughts never rose to the hope that I could win you. It was not till you ordered me by the memory of my mother, ordered me to come to you and to remain near you, that I understood that you were favorably disposed to me, that I might dedicate my life to you. So if I had not myself thrown myself at your head, as the French say, you would not have troubled yourself about me? You have a great many admirers. I could not mix myself up among these swarms. Ah, oh, they do not count for anything. Most of them have no other object except as to the rich widow. Don't you see? That word describes the bar which kept me from paying my court, a rich widow, and I, quite without fortune. Better perish of unrequited love than be despised by the world, and especially by the woman I adore, for the very thing which you have just imputed to the crowd of your suitors. Oh, you proud, noble, dear fellow! I should never have been capable of attributing one low thought to you. Whence this confidence? You really know me so little as yet. And now we began questioning each other further. On the question, since when had we loved each other, followed now the discussion why. What had first attracted me was the way in which he spoke of war. What I had thought and felt in silence, believing that no soldier could think any such thing, much less utter it, he had thought more clearly than I, felt it more strongly, and uttered it with perfect freedom. Then I saw how his heart towered above the interests of his profession, and his intellect above the views of the period. It was that which, so to speak, laid the foundation of my devoted love for him, and besides that there were innumerable other becauses in reply to the why. Because he had so handsome and distinguished a presence, because in his voice there thrilled a soft yet firm tone of its own, because he had been such a loving son, because— "'And you? Why do you love me?' I asked, interrupting myself in thus rendering my account. "'For a thousand reasons, and one. "'Let us hear, first the thousand. "'The great heart, the little foot, the lovely eyes, the brilliant mind, "'the soft smile, the lively wit, the white hand, the womanly divinity, "'the womanly dignity, the wonderful— Stop, stop! Are you going through the whole thousand? Better tell me the one reason. That is no doubt simpler, since the one in its power and irresistibleness embraces all the others. I love you, Martha, because I love you. That is why. End of section 19